Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 17, The Wasps, Legal Laughter. Last time, Socrates took centre stage, or at least a caricature of him did, in The Clouds. The following year, 422 BCE, Aristophanes presented The Wasps at the Linnea Festival. It's not quite clear from the records if it came first or second, but it remains one of the most highly thought of of old comedies and provides more fascinating insights into Athenian society in the 5th century BCE. The play opens with two slaves asleep in the street. The house behind them is covered with a large net. The slaves, Xanthissa and Sosius, wake and tell of how they're keeping watch over their master's father, Philoclean, who has a very strange disease. He is addicted to attending the law courts, and the two slaves can't understand why he doesn't have the normal old man's addictions of gambling and drinking. The law court addiction means that the old man does not sleep well, has become a hoarder, has some rather poor hygiene habits, and becomes easily obsessed and paranoid. Bodiclean, his son, has tried many things to cure him, including counselling, taking him on holiday, and all sorts of medications, but nothing has worked. In desperation, he has turned the house into a prison and keeps his father contained there. Currently, he's sleeping on a wall from where he can see the courtyard of the house as soon as he wakes to keep an eye on his father. When Philiclean does wake, he almost escapes having disguised himself as smoke and comes through the chimney. But Bediclean spots him and he just manages to push him back into the house. As the slaves settle down to sleep again, Bedicleon warns them to be on the lookout for the jurors who will soon arrive to collect his father. He says of them, Why, this class of old men, if irritated, becomes as terrible as a swarm of wasps. They carry below their loins the sharpest of stings, with which to prick their foes. They shout and leap, and their stings burn like so many sparks. And the old men enter. They have heard of their old comrade's imprisonment and have come to rescue him. They swarm about Bedeclean and his slaves like wasps, and Philoclean is passed around between them. Eventually, they agree to resolve the issue by debate. It's a debate that focuses on what advantage Philoclean gets from volunteering for jury service. The old man takes the floor and describes what he likes about the jury system. There's the pay he gets for each attendance that gives him independence in his household, and the pleasure he gets from the attentions of the rich and powerful people who come to negotiate for his vote. And then there is the freedom to interpret the law as he sees fit, as there's never any review of his decisions. Bedeclean responds by pointing out that it's the petty court officials that really control the jurors, and that the pay is not as much as it could be, as the city wealth goes to the private coffers of those in charge, like Cleon. The chorus are persuaded by his arguments, but to make things easier for his father, Bedeclean suggests that he will make a courtroom in his house and give Philoclion a juror's fee for presiding over domestic disputes. The first case presented is between a dog, who looks a lot like Cleon, who accuses another dog, who looks a lot like Latches, an Athenian general active at the time, of stealing a Sicilian cheese and not sharing it. Bedeclean speaks for the kitchen implements, who are the witnesses for the defence, and brings on the puppies of the accused to try and appeal to Philoclean's softer side, but he remains resolute. Bedeclean then tricks him into using the wrong voting jar so that the accused dog is acquitted. In a state of shock at the outcome as he's never before voted for acquittal, Philoclean retires to rest. 
The chorus take up the Parabasis, where they praise Aristophanes for standing up to corrupt politicians like Cleon and berate the audience for not seeing the merit in the clouds last year. The older generation are praised for their bravery at the Battle of Marathon and it's compared with the greed of the current rulers. Philoclion and Bdiklion return discussing a dinner party that they've been invited to. Bdiklion suggests his father should wear some new clothes that he has for him, a fancy woolen garment and some fashionable shoes from Sparta. Philoclion is reluctant, preferring to stick with his old juror's cloak, but eventually he's persuaded. They leave for the party, with Philoclion assuring his son that he won't drink any wine, as it always ends in trouble when he does. But Bdiklion is relaxed about this, feeling that men of the world like them can always talk their way out of trouble. A short second parabasis reminds the audience about the previous disagreements between Cleon and Aristophanes. A servant enters and tells how Philoclion got very drunk and behaved badly at the party, insulting most of the guests. He's now on his way home, picking a fight with anyone he bumps into on the way. Just then, the old man enters with a young woman on his arm. He is very drunk still and being pursued by some of the people he has upset. Father and son then fight over the young woman and Bdiklion is knocked to the ground. The gathering crowd demands compensation from Philoclion and as they threaten him legal action he tries to talk his way out of it but he only makes things worse until Bdiklion drags him off for his own safety. The chorus concludes that this shows how difficult it is for an old man to change his ways and praise sons who honour the obligations to their fathers. Everyone returns to the stage and Philoclion engages in a dancing competition with the sons of the playwright Carcinius. When The Wasps was produced in 422 BCE, Athens was still enjoying the relative peace that came after the defeat of Sparta at the Battle of Spectaria a couple of years earlier. It's a victory that Cleon was able to take some credit for. As with the clouds, Aristophanes diverted his ire from the never-ending war to more social concerns, but Cleon still took his attention. Cleon had fully established himself as a dominant leader in the assembly, off the back of the war successes and other populist policies, and as we know, he and Aristophanes had history. Despite the previous legal proceedings against him, Aristophanes continued to target Cleon and portray him as a corrupt warmonger, and this was no hidden or opaque criticism. In this play, the main characters are Philoclion and Bdiklion, which mean lover of Cleon and hater of Cleon, respectively. Philoclion is a not very pleasant old man who has no self-control and is using corruption in the courts to his own ends. Conversely, Bdiklion is pleasant, law-abiding and cultivated in his tastes. There's no subtlety here and the audience would have been in no doubt as to the target. The assertion was that Cleon was controlling the legal system to his own ends through the manipulation of jurors, but there is also a more general criticism of the legal system and the behaviour of jurors with or without Cleon's influence. The Athenian justice system was an integral part of the democratic system where, constitutionally, power ultimately lay with the people, who were the voters in the assembly and the jurors in court. Figures like Pericles and Cleon were open to the criticism that they could manipulate the people by clever oratory. It's highly likely that those in power had networks of supporters, some of whom acted as informers and, of course, enough money to grease the wheels where necessary. The legal system in Athens in the 4th and 5th centuries BCE is often hailed in the same way as democracy and the arts are, and it's undeniable that the system is the basis for the one we still use today, 
but there are significant differences. Athenians appear to have been keen litigants in the same way they were keen in participating in the democratic process, but we have to be careful. The evidence for legal activity is very limited. There are only about 100 records of court activity that have survived, and we don't have a single record of a complete trial. The records we do have are mostly speeches from one side of the argument and often fragmentary. Mostly, they are cases involving wealthy citizens and so imply that access to the legal system required access to some wealth. However, these are only some of the records that were considered worthy of recording and preserving, so one assumes that they were particularly impressive arguments or oratory and may not be representative of the day-to-day court activities. There's also some commentary from Aristotle who recognised the legal system as an integral part of democracy and from Plato and, of course, what can be surmised from the satire in the comic plays. What is better recorded is that only male citizens had the right to bring a case to court. For a foreigner to bring a case was very exceptional. They were only allowed to bring cases on matters of commerce and then only with special permission from the Assembly. Of course, we're not surprised to read that women and slaves were also excluded. Any case involving a woman or slave would have to be brought through their husband, father or master. Metics, the resident foreigners, appear to have been in the same halfway position that they were in for marriage, but the exact rules for what type of case they could or could not bring to court are not clear from the evidence that we have. Apart from when someone was called to appear, the whole system functioned on a voluntary basis. The roles of the jurors, the litigant and the presiding magistrate were either just part of a civic role or taken up for a very small fee. There was no obligation on the citizens to participate, but also no professional qualification was required if one did. Although we can assume that some individuals would have become expert in a particular role through experience. The essentially voluntary nature of the system was not unusual in Athens. There were many civic roles that were filled by volunteers or attracted only a very small stipend within the Athenian system. Of the volunteers, the number required would be selected by lot. So the system was populist as part of democracy and it's unfair that mostly we only hear of the system in the light of some of its worst decisions, as we would see them, like the death of Socrates and the execution of generals who didn't perform well in the war. There was no police force, no pre-trial arrest for most crimes, or the concept of independent investigation into a crime. When an individual wanted to bring a case, they would be responsible for issuing the summons to the defendant, presumably hoping they'd not disappeared in the meantime, and providing witnesses to the events in question to support their argument. Witnesses were absolutely key to a successful case, as much of the argument appears to have been based on witness testimony rather than any other sort of evidence. Only in cases of contractual matters, mostly unpaid debts, was documentary evidence, usually in the form of a contract, available and utilised. At the more salacious end of the spectrum, we have records of the trial of Ephilitus, who was accused of the murder of one Euphosthenes. In his testimony, Euphilitus tells how a faithful maidservant came to his room and woke him to report that his wife's lover had just entered her chambers. Rather than rushing upon them as one might expect, he went amongst his friends and gathered as many of them as possible before returning home and surprising the errant couple in bed. He pulled the man from the bed, punched him and quickly tied his hands. He reports that the man pleaded with him to spare his life and take payment instead, but Euphilitus killed him, believing that the statute of lawful homicide protected him as the lovers were caught in the act 
and he had witnesses present. The more mundane day-to-day crimes of robbery from a home or street theft were the crimes that could result in arrest. If caught red-handed, and it's not clear if that means in the act or just manifestly guilty of the act, the accused could be arrested by the victim or by a magistrate at the victim's request and taken before a panel of 11 magistrates. If guilt was admitted, then summary execution was the order of the day. Otherwise, the accused was held pending a full trial. It's not clear why these types of crime warranted special treatment, but we can infer that there was a need to deal strictly and quickly with crimes that directly affected the citizen's sense of security and could be disruptive to public order. In court, the jury was made up of up to 500 people, presumably in an attempt to prevent any significant bribery and influencing by the prosecuting parties or the defendants. There was no judge ensuring that law was followed and proceedings were moved along by magistrates in charge. There were no rules of evidence as we would think of them. All sorts of opinion and dubious evidence could be introduced and personal attacks were common. There was no instruction to the jury prior to their deliberations, so a good advocate or prosecutor, a good public speaker, could get the jury on side and convince them how to vote regardless of the evidence. Cleon was renowned as such a speaker. For cases where a victim suspected or knew who the perpetrator was, it was up to them to investigate and find witnesses to support prosecution. There were laws to limit these investigations, so, for example, a home could be searched for evidence, but only with the owner's permission. Once an accuser decided to bring a case, they had to get their suit drawn up and, accompanied by a witness, deliver a summons in person to the accused. On an agreed day, the accuser then presented the case to a magistrate who collected fees and made diary arrangements with the court. There were a series of preliminary meetings that we have little evidence for, but appear to include the presentation of evidence and documents to be used in the trial, which were then kept in a sealed jar until the case came to court. These meetings do not appear to be for the purposes of rejecting cases on legal grounds or as a means of getting a pre-court settlement, as we might think of them today. Proceedings then moved to the courtroom, where parties were expected to speak for themselves, but could use the services of speech writers and have support from advocates speaking on their behalf. To reiterate, there was no professionalism here, so no legal language developed. The records of speeches that we have show laymen retelling events in what appear to be their own voices, so a visit to an Athenian court may not have been as daunting a prospect as we might think. Time allowed for cases varied depending on their seriousness, but no trial lasted longer than a day. Accusers and defendants were both allotted a fixed time in which to make their case, which was monitored by the use of a water clock. Each speaker was allowed to proceed without interruption and to present evidence to support their claim. Knowledge of laws came from their public display. They were carved onto stone in public areas and later made available on scrolls in public buildings so both parties were expected to quote the law relevant to their case. There was, however, no mechanism for contradicting any misquoting of law. The jurors then decided on their vote, and the result was announced, but not formally recorded as far as we can tell from the evidence we have. There was no appeal system, so the jurors' deliberations were final, which put them in a powerful position, combining what we now have as two very distinct roles of jury and judge. Not every dispute had to go to court. There was always an option to hire some thugs and take some personal revenge where witnesses and evidence couldn't be found. Alternatively, the two parties could agree to go to a third party who, for a fee, would provide binding arbitration. 
If a route to court was decided on, then this was either considered private, a case brought by a victim or a close relative, or public, a case brought by any citizen. This distinction was brought in as a way to help ordinary citizens bring a case, but it's not clear how effective it was and may have resulted in the powerful bringing cases for their own ends. In the examples we have, the prosecutor always has something to gain from the action and it was possible to bog down a political or commercial opponent in legal proceedings that could become protracted and a distraction from other matters. Which brings us back to Cleon. There may have been a pool of up to 6,000 jurors selected every year who were paid a small amount for each case that they were involved in. Cleon had been able to amend rules about the payments made to jurors and although they were still small, it seems that jurors became indebted to him and he was accused of packing juries with his supporters. The jury payments were a good way for old men to get some income and they became something of a pension for a large group of older men in the city, so it's easy to see how they might come to rely on the income. Cleon is reputed to have used the legal system extensively to prosecute political enemies and likely for personal gain too. Given that the jurors were paid as they worked, it's perhaps not surprising that Cleon was in their favour as he generated work for them. The degree to which he was corrupt or was using the system to his best advantage but within the legal limits is really not clear. As the debate in the legal system develops between father and son in the play, Aristophanes maintains that the system is corrupt and the jurors misled by Cleon and his like. The two dogs in the domestic trial explicitly represent Cleon and Latches, and the Sicilian cheese they're fighting over refers to the bribes that Latches was accused of taking from the Spartan cities on the island and kept for himself. The chorus of old men and boys were, we think, costumed as wasps, no doubt with stings protruding from their rear. Translations vary, but there are many references to stings, how they protrude and harden. Lines from the chorus leader like, I feel my angry sting is stiffening, the sharp sting with which we punish our enemies, must surely have been played for innuendo as much as the criticism of Cleon that follows. Old men strutting around in bee costumes and speaking words that could have salacious double meaning would be comic even today. The comedies suggest the Greek audience liked their entertainment satiric and ribald. These scenes can easily be played for knockabout comedy. Then, sometimes, it takes a darker turn. When in a rage with his servant Xanthissus, Philoclean says, Don't you remember the day when I surprised you stealing the grapes? I tied you to the olive tree and I cut open your bottom with such vigorous lashes that folks thought you'd been raped. Go away, you're ungrateful. Not so funny for us today, but in its time perhaps more acceptable. If you, like me, are old enough to look back on comedies that were on primetime television in the 1970s and 1980s, then it's easy to see how quickly sensibilities change. In some ways it's surprising that we can see any of the humour in these very old plays, but it's there in places at least, and that speaks to how aspects of human nature are unchanged in all that time. I think it's particularly worth noting the opening of the play, which is very strikingly visual. I've spoken quite a lot about the ability of the language to set the scene and how important that was in the tragedies, which in many ways are theatre of the imagination. The comedies, I think, rely much more on the visual, not least because not all humour is verbal and, where it is, it can be enhanced through the visual. The opening image of the three sleeping men and the netted house is quite surreal and must have made the audience sit up and wonder what was coming next. 
Then the scenes of the old man trying to escape from the house, first disguised as smoke and trying to climb up the chimney, and then to fly off as a swallow, were surely played for the visual joke of the old man trying to be athletic, and must have been full of slapstick comedy. As in the clouds, there are many topical references that are now lost on us, but no doubt would have caused much amusement among the contemporary audience. Characterisation is seen as one of the strongest points of the play. So much so that even the chorus of waspish old jurors have more character than any chorus that we have come across before. Although Bedeklian and Philoclian are representative of the two sides of the debate, they too are also surprisingly well-drawn characters. Philoclian in particular is not only comic but quick-witted and appealing despite having a quite a nasty side to his character. Like Socrates in The Clouds, he's a character who believes in what he's doing and as such garners our sympathy even if Aristophanes clearly wants to show that he's in the wrong in his beliefs. It's easy to imagine how he could be played as a comic dirty old man, but then he also expounds on the problems brought about by old age and addiction, so in turn he's quite a sympathetic character. If Strepsides in the clouds leaves us feeling that he rather deserved to be exposed for the devious fraud he is, then we leave Philoclean, well, rather liking him, which is probably not what Aristophanes intended. In the usual form, the play ends with a dance by the cast, centering on the old man for most comic effect. He dances with the sons of the playwright Carcinus, who was a well-known tragedian of the time. None of his works survive complete, nor those of his sons, who were also playwrights. He was working in Syracuse and is credited with 160 plays, but only titles and fragments of nine plays have survived. It's not clear why Aristophanes chose to include his sons in the final dance, but I think it serves as a reminder of both the prolific output of the Greek playwrights and the interconnectedness of the exponents of the art. It seems that the theatrical world was close-knit as it is today. So in its broad themes, The Wasps is timeless, making fun of those given authority, of the differences between the generations and the uncontrollable passions of men have been prolific themes in comedy since the time of Aristophanes. Add a phallus and some over-exaggeration, and there are plenty of laughs to be had. I think we have to imagine the play presented more in the style of farce rather than comedy. The netted house and the chorus of wasps put us in a surreal setting, where old men are manhandled, can get drunk and pick up young women, and dogs bring legal cases. The topical, cultural and political references then bring the audience back to the real world. It's a mix that must have had an impact, but it's very difficult to gauge exactly how that was felt by the contemporary audience. Clearly, the plays were popular, and therefore we can assume funny, but most other impact is now lost with the passage of time and changing sensibilities. Next time, Aristophanes takes up his anti-war theme again, and with a vengeance as he imagines what might have happened when women take charge and try to bring the Peloponnesian War to an end. There's still plenty of polemic and protest, but also a bawdy romp of a sex comedy, so I'll try and spare the blushes as we go to the Acropolis and meet a band of men driven to desperation by their desperate wives and their leader, Lysistrata. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. 